0: Welcome to the Modern Art Notes Podcast. I'm Tyler Green. This week we'll start with Mark Dion, and unlike in previous weeks, I am not going to beg you to fill out our annual listener survey. It's over, done with, and I'll share some information from it sometime in the next week or two. This weekend, the Institute of Contemporary Art Boston opens Mark Dion Misadventures of a 21st Century Naturalist, a survey of over 20 years of Dion's sculptures, installations, and drawings. The exhibition, which was curated by Ruth Erickson with Jessica Hong, is on view through January 1st next year. The exhibition catalog, which was published by the ICA and Yale University Press, might be the best art book of 2017. Do not miss it. Amazon offers it for $48. We'll have a link on manpodcast.com. Dion works at the intersection of art, natural history, history, and anthropology, his art examines and often critiques humanity's approach to nature, landscape, and science through witty address of scientific methodologies and installations that often have roots in Victoria-era presentation. He has fulfilled commissions and had exhibitions at museums all over the world, including the Museum of Modern Art in New York, the Tate, and the British Museum of Natural History in London. He's also a co-director of Mildred's Lane, a visual art education and residency program in Beach Lake, Pennsylvania. On the second segment, Annika E. E is included in Trigger, Gender as a Tool and a Weapon at the New Museum in New York. The exhibition, which was curated by Joanna Burton with Sarah O'Keefe and Natalie Bell, looks at gender in the context of America's national political crisis. It's on view through January 21st, 2018. But first, Mark Dion, after a break. <laughs> celebrate Pacific Standard Time L.A.L.A., an ambitious exploration of Latin American and Latino art in dialogue with Los Angeles, at a special event on Saturday, October 14th, from 1 to 9 p.m. Artist interventions, rare short films, curator-led tours, and DJ sets lead up to a mesmerizing evening concert by Ecuadorian-American electronic musician Elato Negro, all amid the Getty's stunning architecture and breathtaking views. Learn more about this show and other upcoming performances at getty.edu 360. This fall, the Hammer Museum in Los Angeles presents Radical Women, Latin American Art 1960 to 1985. Including more than 280 works created by 120 artists and collectives from 15 different countries, the exhibition highlights the contributions of Latin American, Latina, and Chicana women to contemporary art. Radical Women is part of Pacific Standard Time L.A.L.A., an initiative of the Getty with arts institutions across Southern California exploring Latin American and Latino art in dialogue with Los Angeles. Radical Women Latin American Art 1960-1985 on view September 15th to December 31st at the Hammer Museum. Details at hammer.ucla.edu. Support for the Modern Art Notes podcast comes from the Wexner Center for the Arts at The Ohio State University, presenting Cindy Sherman, Imitation of Life through December 31st. Organized by The Broad in Los Angeles, this expansive survey of over 100 works makes its only appearance outside L.A. at the Wex. From Sherman's iconic untitled film stills through her most recent series of aging divas from the silent film era, Imitation of Life highlights the artist's engagement with cinema and celebrity and her career-long investigation of the influence of mass media on identity and ideas about women. The exhibition is accompanied by a star-studded audio guide featuring the voices of Miranda July, John Waters, Molly Ringwald, and more, and it closes a calendar year in which every artist featured in the WEX galleries is a woman. For more information about the Wexner Center's programming, go to wexarts.org. and we're back. Mark Dion, welcome to the Modern Art Notes podcast.
1: Thank you. I'm glad to be here.
0: Let's go back to nearly the beginning. 1981. You're in art school. As I understand it, you initially considered becoming a paleontology illustrator. And there's a long history of botanical illustration and avian illustration contributing to fine art, if you will, in both Europe and in the US. So this you know, in this this confluence has been of an increasing interest to historians and curators in recent years. So this is a very long way of asking how did paleontology illustration inform where you wanted to go and where you ended up going?
1: Well, you know, I, I come from a family, a very kind of blue-collar family, and certainly going to the Fine Art Museum was not something we did. It wasn't really part of our culture, but I, I grew up in uh, Fairhaven and New Bedford, Massachusetts, and so I would go very often to the Whaling Museum there, which is a really interesting kind of composite museum of of Natural history, fine art, decorative arts, social history, uh, industrial history. So this idea of of all these things kind of mixing together was really interesting. But as a lot of kids growing up in the 60s, you know, I was fascinated with dinosaurs. And the one place you could see dinosaurs were, were of course, the Time Life publications.
0: Oh, yeah, the book.
1: Yeah, exactly. And, you know, things like the big red book, the, The World We Live In. Many of those wonderful dinosaur murals, like the ones that are at the Peabody at Yale, were painted by uh, Rudolf Zallinger, who was teaching at at the Hartford Art School when I was looking at schools and applying to schools. And so the idea that this master paleo artist was actually teaching that just that just really was a magnet for me to go to the Hartford Art School. And you know, once I got there, I was introduced to to contemporary art and conceptual art, and, and you know, I started, I started studying with people like Jack Goldstein, who could not have been more different. And and Jack brought his friends, people like Dan Graham and Vito Acconci, to the school, and that kind of stuff just blew my mind and really expanded what I imagined art could be. So that that kind of started me on a very different direction.
0: So paleontology illustration was a childhood interest in. In dinosaurs being exploded by your teachers in art school and pointing you to possibilities you hadn't really thought of, more than something that continued to inform your practice in the 90s and aughts?
1: Well, I would say that I, I, I've never really abandoned my fascination with scientific illustration. I do a lot of projects today that still involve working on traditional scientific illustrations and and creating teams who help me produce scientific illustrations or or things that are very much in that family. I'm I'm still quite fascinated with how scientists continue to rely on traditional techniques of drawing and painting to really understand what they're looking at. And I I think that that's a really interesting way of thinking about plants and animals as individuals and about encouraging a kind of careful looking.
0: I always... I think it's kind of unusual and revealing about institutional histories that things like botanical illustration end up separated from, quote, fine art collections at at universities and related institutions. So Isaac Sprague's great drawings for Asa Gray at Harvard are, you know, strewn all over Boston and New England. They're not at the Fog or what is now the Harvard Art Museums. And as a result, to find those histories, there's a certain excavation that that has to be done.
1: Yeah, absolutely. So I think science il- illustration suffers from these kind of artificial hierarchies we have around art. And, you know, the recent exhibition I did at the Drawing Center with my partners, uh, Catherine McLeod and and Madeline Thompson, where we rescued these wonderful illustrations from the Department of Tropical Research in uh, the William Beebe's organization based at the New York Zoological Society, and showed those in the in the fine art, the elevated context of the drawing center. And and I think it was very easy to see how compelling and and dynamic these drawings were.
0: We'll have a link to that show on manpodcast.com. I want to zip ahead conceptually, and then we're going to loop back to some specific works. In an interview you did a couple years ago with the podcast Bad at Sports, one of one of their really best episodes, I think, you talked about how in the 1990s you realized you were being included in lots of shows about nature and land and even landscape, and you felt like you were getting pigeonholed as the guy who makes art about living and, and dead nature. And you said that as a result, you began to focus on ologies, if you will, methodology and typology and that you began making work rooted in scientific practices as a result. And I thought that was really interesting, because in in American history, there's a similar such split in the 1830s. Emerson writes his landmark 1836 essay, Nature, for lots of reasons, of course. But one of them is that he thinks that science, with its emphasis on classification and naming, was stomping on the human experience of the wonders of nature. And you did kind of the opposite thing to what Emerson did in the 1830s. So this is a long way of asking. (laughs) How much does the history of American response to nature inform or interest you?
1: Well, you know, I think maybe I'm not entirely aligned with the sort of transcendentalist notion that, you know, that the forests are cathedrals and that we find our, you know, we find the hand of God in nature. I, I think that there are ways of appreciating nature without imposing a kind of religious view and, and 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 I don't really think you know this this idea that's expressed in romanticism that beauty dies as as science grows I I don't really find that a convincing argument I think that understanding things through through biology and through science is you know a better way to appreciate them than I don't really believe in this kind of notion of uh, things being more beautiful because they're mysterious, I, I think they can still be remarkable and 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 beautiful, and we can still understand them through the tools of science. I don't think anything is diminished from wonder through scientific inquiry. I would say quite the opposite: the more we know, the more wonderful things are.
0: And and historically, that's where Emerson got later. I mean, you know, it took him twenty or thirty years, but that's 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 where he gets. You know, I w- you have used an Alfred Russell Wallace quote in your work at least one or two times. The objective of the best art and science is not to strip nature of wonder, but to enhance it. And that's really kind of Wallace, who, who was a British scientist who came up with natural selection at about the time Darwin did. Did you find that Wallace quote as you were into your career or was was a quote like that and a study of Wallace foundational?
1: A little bit of both. I, I would say I was I was it was early in my career. You know, I, I did a project about Wallace and about the difference maybe between Wallace and Darwin in the in coming up with the notion of evolution through natural selection. Uh, the the story, whether it's true or not, is that Wallace is inspired in this moment where he is he's ill. He has a he has malaria and he is in a feverish kind of miasma and, and suddenly this idea kind of pops into his fevered brain as opposed to Darwin, who's really plodding along who's, who is working through this argument in, in, you know, masticating these ideas for a very long time, putting together his argument. There is with Wallace, this kind of Eureka moment. And I love the idea of these two men independently finding the mechanism of evolution But doing so through very different methodologies, and and you know that just the characters themselves and their own personal lives very much mirror those two different those those two different ways of coming to that conclusion. You know, Darwin is in his later life very sedentary. You know, he has he's a kind of creature of habit. He's very well researched, and Wallace is is throwing himself all over the world from the Amazon to the Malay Archipelago and and has this very empirical relationship to things and to people and because of that experience of course he is not a typical victorian he's much more broad-minded and and at the same time he's not uh, he also is open to things that maybe later we would be more dismissive of like his interest in spiritualism and other
0: things we're talking about the 19th century i imagine you spend a lot of time talking about the 19th century You often create places, installations, objects that look like they live in an inspecific 19th century. So I'm thinking of of work such as 2010's The Amateur Ornithologist Clubhouse or your 2011 Oakland Museum installation, among many others. I could go on. What is it about a kind of specifically Victorian inspecificity that appeals to you? Is it entirely history or are there aesthetic reasons you like to go there, too?
1: Well, I do think there is an important historic aspect of this, right? So I'm trying. I am always policing myself against the use of of nostalgia, right? I, you know, I certainly don't think the 19th century were the good old days. I don't think that they were uh, a better time for people like ourselves and for and for most of the other people on the planet. I, you know, I think that they were really uh, quite grim times. But they are also the the crucible of natural history they're really the crucible of how we understand the natural world and a lot of the mistakes that we carry with us are forged there but also a lot of the things that expand our vision of nature and expand it in a very inclusive way and in a way that is i think very thoughtful so things like evolution for example are also forged there so we are chained to some of those 19th century ideas so I'm interested in that and I'm also interested in how in the 19th century as as nature sort of begins to disappear from the lives of a lot of people there is a very obvious attempt to bring nature back in through the decorative arts, through the fine arts, through the kind of phenomena of domestic taxidermy and the phenomena of, of floral wallpaper and all of these things. So, so I find that there's a, a lot of in both in a in kind of science and proto-science sense but also in a sense of the domestic and everyday life there are a lot of really exciting and uh, formative nodules of our social construction of nature that we we are whether we like it or not still kind of stuck with so that's often why I'm brought back to that moment.
0: Is there something in the aesthetics of the way Victorian rooms looked or the way Victorians hung things on walls or in cabinets or on desks that specifically appeals to you? Or does it just go along with the thing?
1: I think there's definitely a, a you know, also personal preference, right? I'm someone who despises the kind of minimal space. You know, I, I really find the Victorian insistence on excess the, that kind of ovacula is, is 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 extremely personally appealing to me as well, and and I think no doubt I'm I'm very attracted to those spaces formally, and that includes to that period's museology as well. You know, I I, I much prefer how the British Museum rooms looked in the 19th century than how they looked in the 1970s. You know, I'm much more interested in say how a museum like the Pitt Rivers looks and is put together than how the contemporary ethnography museum in Paris is put together. So there, there are definitely some aesthetic, there's a kind of aesthetic fidelity maybe I have to that, to that idea, which also fits into my, you know, my living space is kind of like that as well. So that it is, I am a person who believes that my work is about a kind of interrogation of ideas, but these ideas are also bound in things and that these things speak. And Part of my uh, job as a sculptor is to be able to learn how to be a smith in combining these objects in a way to make them evocative, to make them speak to the audience around the issues that I'm interested in. You know, the issues of the construction of the social category of nature.
0: Your installations are absent 19th century humans for obvious reasons and are, if we're lucky, populated by by us in the 21st century. But in 1999, with J. Morgan Pewitt, you made a series of uh, sepia-toned pictures, photographs, titled The Ladies' Field Club of York, having contemporary people, people you you work with in in British museums, wearing period dress and and, and presented as if being in period. You know, having created and, and being then in the process of creating places that referenced 19th century histories but were absent people, were you interested in imagining or thinking about what they would be like if they were populated or was that more of an aesthetic experience or was that complicating stories of gender in your work, which tend to be built around histories that were created by white men?
1: Well, you know, I I think that there, there is, was certainly an, or and there is an unacknowledged role of, of women in the history of natural histories and in, In the 19th century, of course, women are not allowed to be part of the kind of societies that are forming an academic sense of what the natural world is. And at the same time, there are many examples of women explorers who make significant contributions. And also, you have lots of women who are involved in a more kind of amateur hobbyish and club-like activity of collecting seaweeds and collecting plants and collecting birds and a whole series of things. So I think that that in some way, even though women were excluded from formally participating in that discourse, there were lots of women who practiced it regardless. And and I think that that's, you know, for me, something I, I think very heroic in a sense. And, and so Morgan and I researched a lot of these women, but also we were very interested in this kind of strange 18th and 19th century phenomena of using women's bodies as a uh, as allegories for different properties. So so our, each of our figures from the Ladies' Field Club represents a, a scientific discipline at the time. So someone like Frances Morris, who's the curator at the Tate, she became the lapidopterist, and Ivana Blaswick becomes the botanist, and Victoria Pomeroy becomes the ornithologist, and Lisa Corin becomes the anthropologist. So we're interested in using what was was at that moment a kind of matriarchy in the London museum culture world to to also acknowledge the kind of some of the perhaps positive things that have happened uh, and the leadership roles that women have now that they were not open to them then and at the same time to acknowledge that there is this sort of secret history and that's a secret history you know of of a kind of sorority of of women who have this fascination with the natural world despite being excluded from from formal
0: academic discourses it's a pretty great piece it's included in in the Boston show yeah it's
1: a really it's a it's a really exciting piece and we you know we re- worked with actual period costumes and Eno Morgan is of course a, a costume expert so and we worked with large format cameras and we produced cabinet cards as truly as we
0: could but big ones they're 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 bigger, right?
1: <laughs> actually, actually, the, actually, the ones we're showing here are, are the same size. Oh, they're one to one. They're actually cabinet card size. So there's there's two sets of these. One is at the Tate, and those are larger. And then there's one that's actual cabinet card size. And then those we're showing here in Boston.
0: So sorry to jump around a bit, but the show does too. And I I, I think one of the interesting things about your oeuvre is that it it doesn't really fit tidy chronologies. So we've been talking about work you've made that make use of the display strategies of early science works like on tropical nature which is at the montclair museum and is in the the boston show i think it's the earliest work in the boston show it dates to 91 and the new york state bureau of tropical conservation which is at the whitney and is also in the show and i think is the second oldest work in the show dates to 92 and they show the sites where science might have been done if you will wink wink how material might be stored the administrative process of the thing, if you will. And it's not long after 91 and 92 that you make what seems to me to be a really, really different piece. 1994's Toys R Us, When Dinosaurs Ruled the Earth, which is at MOCA and is also in Boston now. And it, it addresses the, the pop cultureization of scientific history, a little bit of your own biography that you referenced earlier. We'll have images of all of these on manpodcast.com. And so, in that way, in its address of, of of pop culture, it to me kind of stands apart from your other investigations. Do you think of it that way?
1: Well, I guess I guess I I do in, in some ways. Although there were other pieces that I I did earlier that that revolved around more popular culture elements. Although I do think that you know some of these earlier pieces that we're talking about that involve fieldwork are also very consciously playing a game about the the popular figure of the field biologist and and whenever I'm often often when I'm referencing biologists I'm talking more about those that handful of people who are the intermediaries between the public and the scientific world so people like the the Rachel Carsons of the world and the Jacques Cousteau's in the world and the Stephen Gould's of the world. And I guess you would say the Neil deGrasse Tyson's of the world and, and William Beebe. I'm, I'm really interested in these people who make the effort to communicate an expanding view of of the world and nature and natural process to a general public. And so I, I think about some of those field pieces where I'm out doing these somewhat heroic in quotations, activities and collecting things in, in very remote places as very much playing into the expectations we have of what that biologist is or that, that uh, conservation biologist in the field is. So those pieces do have a, a subtle reference to a, a sort of popular cultural character, but they're not as much analytical of that popular Character as something like Toys R Us, which is, which is obviously very much a work that's in the same family of the kind of commodity critique that's going on in the early 90s amongst other artists and artists of, a, of even a previous generation.
0: I find that a lot of the writing, critical writing about your work, deals with the history of science and not so much about the ways in which you may or may not, depending on what the critic thinks be engaging with the contemporary art of your time is toys are us a specific or conscious engagement with Mike Kelly.
1: I wouldn't say so. I mean, I, I would say it's maybe closer to an engagement with people like Heim Steinbeck maybe, or, you know, that in, in that, you know, it's really coming from a, you know, a kind of critique of commodity culture, in a sense, so I think. Whereas I think you know, much of Mike Kelly's work is so much about it is about a kind of it is about the psychology of social construction, uh, and and the the institutions that form or deform or or misform misinform an individual. So I I don't think so. But but you know, what, I mean, what's interesting about that piece for me is that it is the first in a long series of of period rooms that i attempt right it's it's a it's a work that t- that takes on this other museum convention of the period room and and that's something i i've learned from that piece and, and continued in in many ways and and it's become a very strong tendency in in my approach to making immersive spaces is, is to directly reference the notion of the period room, which, which is a complex thing. You know, the curators often hate period rooms, but the public love them. And I, I think in this case, uh, it's a good indication that the public should be listened to because their, their affection for these period rooms really does speak about how one can break down the kind of the informational hierarchies that exist within the museum itself.
0: We're going to come back to dioramas and, and, and period rooms in a bit, but you mentioned just a moment ago enjoying the idea of these popularizers of science uh, as as cultural figures. You made a super piece in 2009 called Tropical Collectors, Bates, Spruce, and Wallace, names of three scientists, and it's an installation that purports to be of, of their gear, blankets, boxes, chests, things like that. You know, it's another work rooted in the Victorian moment and period and aesthetic. And I guess this is sort of less an art question than it is a biography question. But when you're making or installing a pieces that such as that or performing a piece such as in the Thames with with the Tate, do you find yourself thinking about your gear because in a way your gear is engaging <laughs> that that very thing you make in 2009 or maybe vice versa. Yeah.
1: I mean, I I think, are are you thinking of my gear in relationship to my field gear, which, yeah.
0: Yeah. yeah,
1: I mean, you know, also I think, you know, for instance, when I'm working on the Thames, I am very much conscious of the fact that I am, I am projecting a kind of artist character, right? So I wear a specific uniform, which is kind of close enough to be believable. But at the same time, I understand how I'm constructing the identity of the of Mark Dion, the artist's character as opposed to myself, right?
0: If I can just jump in for a second in the catalog, which is gorgeous and wonderful, there are probably ten or fifteen pictures of you in character. It's it's a part of the presentation of the show.
1: I think for me that was very you know, I, I learned a lot through studying the way joseph boyce constructed himself as a character in a way and the way he developed this uniform and was able to bring a lot to his public presence to it, it's not strictly performative in a conventional sense but yet it is highly performative and i think in in a lot of these projects where i do especially the archaeological digs and i do the field collecting projects I am it very much is a performance, even if the audience is not necessarily right there in front of me. And I'm very careful about the kinds of images I allow to circulate in the world. It, it's very much, un, it adds another layer to the reception of these images. I mean the reception of these works. And so having, having command over what those images are, how they depict my character and, and how that forms a foundation for the works later reception is something, you know, to me, like very, it's, it's, it's something I, I learned very, very early on and learned very cautiously through looking at people like Boyce and Yves Klein, who who very much controlled that aspect of their artistic persona.
0: So in the archive that someday you will leave to or sell to NYU or wherever, is there a folder of? Mark Dion and character images.
1: <laughs> oh, totally, <laughs> absolutely. I, there's a, there is a, there are two folders. There's one that is uh, are glossy black and whites, and there's one that are uh, that are slide pages.
0: So you thought about this as a key construct early on. Yes,
1: I, I mean very much so. I mean, uh, you know, I, I was very inspired by the 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 Flaubert novel Bovard and Peccotet, right? So these two amateur characters who go through the book playing out all of the 19th century obsessions, whether that's natural history and medicine and romantic poetry and love and land ownership. And they do all these things incredibly badly, right? So in my works where I'm doing things very early on, where I'm jumping from being a botanist to being an ichthyologist to being an archivist, I'm also doing them very badly. This is not about the mastery of science, but this is rather about the inability to master techniques and technologies that an artist like myself cannot master those things. These are things that take a career and a lifetime and expertise. So the slippage between that mastery and, and failure and the kind of masquerading that goes on, those are really important aspects of this, of this work.
0: I think I'm probably overly sticking you in the 19th century, so let me zoom ahead. Starting in, I guess, the mid to late 90s, you started making work about a very non 19th century concern, namely pollution and human created environmental degradation. There are pieces such as Killers Killed, a, piece, uh, a work you made between 94 and 2007 that reference oil spills and kind of referencing the context context of, say, Goya or, or, or Jacques Collot prints. And there's a piece from 99-2000 at the Museum of Contemporary Art San Diego titled Landfill, which kind of stands in for an excavation of, of human debris as as considered in a, in a portable diorama of sorts. So this is a long way again of asking when did you decide to complicate the narratives in which you'd been working by adding pollution and, and human negative influence, if you will.
1: Well, I I think that a lot of the nature that I represented, you know, almost from the beginning was not necessarily nature with a, with a capital N that, um, that means untouched Alaskan landscapes. You know, when I, when I do the project, when, when I first show the the project in in ninety two at American Fine arts with uh, the the tropical New York Department of tropical conservation I'm also doing a piece where I'm classifying um, I'm keying out and and uh, systematically identifying fish but I'm not gathering these fish from the wild I'm gathering them from New York City's Chinatown so this international trade market where things are coming from all over the world it's not a kind of vision of of nature that leaves human influence behind. It's very much integrated. Um, You know, at the same time, as someone who is obviously very committed to wild things and wild places, I think it's it's an aspect of what I I want to do is represent the kind of natural world that we are we are constructing for ourselves, which is highly compromised. Not all the organisms, of course, are losers in this new environment that we're we're creating? We're you know we're creating a world that, for some organisms, is is ideal. You know, for the kinds of things that cohabitate with us—roaches and rats and pigeons—they're doing extremely well. So, so I think that that's one of the things I became very interested in, is this this sort of notion of these. Are selected species these organisms that are able to rush into disrupted environments and because they produce large numbers of offspring they don't really have to produce in season they completely take advantage of, of the food availability that that a human environment allows you know they're increasing in numbers we tend to detest these animals, but we detest them because they exhibit the characteristics that we do. You know, they are generalists and they're opportunists and, and uh, they're able to cross borders, ecological borders, very readily. And so, so you know, I, I worked with the artist Bob Brain and Alexis Rockman. We did a whole series of publications and, and exhibitions around these organisms that inhabit the concrete jungle.
0: In 2014, you made Cabinet of Marine Debris. To make it, you joined a scientific expedition that was studying the accumulation of plastic in the Pacific. And then uh, at the end of the expedition, you cleaned up many tons of debris that had washed up in, in southwest Alaska. It's a piece that's aesthetically in line with the previous several decades of your work. But it's also, you know, and it's it's brightly colored, candy-colored plastic and, and just the sheer volume of the thing. It, it seems... To me, to be more pointed, more insistent more i don't know visually louder is it is it is that a fair way to think of it is is it a is it a more in your face way of addressing pollution and environmental degradation than you were doing twenty years before it
1: well i i'm I'm not sure if it's more direct i mean i do think that that in a way a lot of modes of address are are a little bit simpler now, and and almost a little bit less sophisticated, but partially for a good reason, which is that the audience that consumes art is much broader, in a sense. So, you know, when you made an artwork in the gallery in the 1990s, you would know a lot about who would walk through that door and come and see it. You know, today, if I work in here in Boston at the ICA, the audience here is not only is it vast, but it's also broad. I can't make assumptions about them it's really like doing a work in a public space and, and and you know to me that's a triumph that's something really wonderful but it also does perhaps affect my mode of address in terms of not necessarily making as many deep art art historical references or speaking as ironically as i might have in the past uh, but but this piece in in particular i think you know, it was part of a, of an expedition with scientists from the Carl Safina Center and the Smithsonian and NOAA uh, and the Alaska Sea Life Federation and artists like Pam Longobardi and myself going to look at where the, the North Pacific gyre is just depositing trash on some of the most remote islands you could imagine. So a place where there's certainly there are. Are no people? There haven't been people for a very long time, and yet you have to wade through uh, knee-deep piles of garbage to get there. That's a kind of extraordinarily moving and 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 depressing and dispiriting experience. So I'm, I collect that stuff and I install it with some of the conventions of the you know the sort of wonder camera uh, cabinet of curiosity display methodology, which which is something I use very often, and I, and I think that's because. For me, the, you know, the cabinet of curiosity as an idea, the window camera as an idea, really book, bookends the modern world, right? On one hand, you have you know, this, this kind of sense of the marvelous and wonder as Europeans are discovering that the world is much bigger and contains much more than they ever dreamt of. And on the other bookend is, is you know, our sense of mourning as, as we are losing all these things as as you know, now that that tradition is coming to an end, because what those Europeans have brought is nothing but exploitation, extinction, colonialism, and all of that resulting in the disappearance of the very things they found wonderful to begin with. So for me, that's a piece like that embodies that kind of complex visual display language.
0: Well, speaking of that visual display language in two thousand one, you made a Wunderkammer piece titled uh, New Bedford cabinet It's a work that the i c a acquired this very year It's full of buoys and pottery shards and glass bottles and whatnots from New England's past. You mentioned earlier that you grew up in in New Bedford. How autobiographical is is this piece? Is it kind of a little bit of a self portrait
1: Well, you know there's a lot of New England and me and with this ICA <laughs> ICA show there's a lot of me in New England actually <laughs> you know I was I was interested in looking at three New England cities that have very distinct material cultures so New Bedford uh, with its whaling history and and its its industrial history Providence which was such a globally connected city very early on and Brockton which was the city that was the Americas um, premier a shoe factory, and but still was surrounded by farmlands.
0: And if I could jump in really quick, you did you showed these three together in New England Digs at the Fuller Museum in Brockton, yeah?
1: Exactly, exactly. So this was this was a project I did with uh, Denise Marconish and uh, and Bob Brain, and working with students from University of Massachusetts Dartmouth, from Brown and RISD. So a really interesting kind of collaborative endeavor, and then exhibiting all of the finds, constructing these three cabinets, which in many ways, in many kind of subtle ways, do describe these very different social histories of these three different places based on the remains of material culture. So, you know, a lot of the archaeological projects are, you know, they're different from conventional archaeology in that they are inclusive. You know, one must find themselves in these cupboards as well. So history isn't just something that happened to someone else a long time ago. It is a continuum that's inclusive. And that's what I'm really working toward in making these archaeological endeavors is that sense of the inclusiveness of, of, of history.
0: But this piece in particular could be more inclusive of your personal life history. And did you intend it to be?
1: I, I think so. You know, I mean, I, there, there was a you know a big part of the motivation, of course, of doing New England digs was also to spend some time in New England, and and my mother was getting elderly at the time, and you know I wanted to find a way to con- you know ha- I have to continue working, but at the same time to be able to be a little more attentive to her in her waning years, and to maintain contact with my my place of origin.
0: A couple times we've referenced period rooms, dioramas as things off of which you jump. Dioramas especially are familiar to anybody who has been to an American Natural History Museum in the last five or six decades. Do you remember if you believed in the accuracy of dioramas as a kid and if there was a point at which you began to realize they were fictions rather than rooted representations of actuality?
1: Well, I think I always understood them as an ideal, in the same way that I understood the illustrations I was looking at about the natural world, produced by people like Rudolf Zallinger in the Time Life books, as ideals. I, I wanted nature to be like that. You know, when when you look at one of those illustrations of the tropical rainforest, and every animal in the rainforest is out at that moment right, right? They're, they're all there <laughs> side by side you can see them all of course that sets you up for great disappointment when you go to a tropical forest and it, you know it, it takes you half a day to see a bird but that was a sort of fantasy that that i understood that 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 language was a, was a fantasy wasn't was an idealization and very much that's how dioramas were as well so i you know i i think yeah for me i understood that as a kind of as a as a What it is a a sort of teaching tool. Uh, At the same time, it's it's a great you know it is this incredible way of of condensing time in the same way that a lot of those illustrations and a lot of dioramas also play with this 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 way of depicting nocturnal and diurnal time at the same time.
0: And finally, this is a big old institutional retrospective in 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 your own backyard in in New England, and yet it's. Physically impossible for your most famous work, Newcomb Vivarium, in Seattle's Olympic Sculpture Park, to to be in it. Artists often kind of have a standoffish relationship to their pasts and to retrospectives and to how they happen. You made a piece in two thousand eight titled "The Octagon Room," which which can be read as, and indeed in the catalog, Denise Marconish reads it as uh, a, a kind of want of institutional retrospective embrace, as wanting to kind of have that moment. How do you think about or feel about or or address in your own mind that in this summation of your career, there's kind of really no practical way that your most famous work can be in it?
1: Well, what we've done is we've created uh, two dioramas of works that are too large and too site-specific to be in the show. So in a sense, we've we found a solution to that, which of course is not a solution at all, but but a production of two new kinds of works. But they reference the, the museum language of the diorama, which is something I've I've played with for a long time. So there is one of of the piece which is called Den, which is a cave that I've constructed in the Arlen Mountains in Norway, and you find yourself walking into the darkness and and in a chamber, and in that chamber you're looking at a diorama of the interior of a cave which is filled with thousands of objects from the history of material culture and then there's a large bear sleeping on the top of it and the other of course is the Newcomb Bavarium in Seattle which is a very immersive piece that contains a 160 foot long nurse log which is which is slowly rotting and producing the energy for the next generation of forest that grows on top of it a fallen hemlock yeah but also you know I do a lot of Museum interventions and collaborations with institutions and projects where I reorganize their collections for them and build uh, new display systems for them. These kinds of things can't be included in this exhibition, but they are, I think, very well spoken about in the catalog.
0: Phenomenally, think, yeah, yeah. The and, catalog's and really great.
1: <laughs> I, I think I'm I'm extremely proud of the catalog and and the team of writers and and I did reach out to a lot of people like Denise Marconish and and Colleen Sheehy and and uh, Mary Jane Jacob and Lisa Corin, people who I've had you know lifetime relationship with, developing ideas and and curating projects with. So yeah, I mean that's that's the tricky thing, of course, is that this retrospective focuses on the work that is is perhaps more sculptural but uh, i'm not ashamed of that i'm very proud of my sculptural work and and i think that that is a that's often an aspect of the work that's not talked about in some of the other publications i have is that this work functions and speaks i think very well as sculpture and in with in with a discourse that is a sculptural discourse so I'm happy to have this exhibition like that and happy to be able to flesh out some of these other, some of the more collaborative and large scale and public art scale projects uh, in the book.
0: We mentioned earlier that your work typically addresses or often addresses science done by white guys because that's who did science in the 19th century. The catalog, all but two of the authors, so something like 12 to 2 or 14 to 2, all but two of the authors are women. Was that a conscious choice?
1: I don't think it's a conscious choice, but I, I, I think that we—I mean—that's uh, women have been my collaborators on these exhibitions from the beginning, and 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 yeah, it's I've, I've mostly worked with women, and I've had mostly the best experiences of my professional career working side by side and uh, with with women collaborators, and also in the exhibitions that I've done. You know, I collaborate with Serena Basta on on exhibitions that we do together and the exhibition, like at the Drawing Center with Madeline Thompson and and Catherine McLeod. So it's very, I mean, that's, it's not planned, but it certainly happens that way. And and I'm very proud of the projects I've done with my collaborators.
0: It's a a great catalog. We'll have uh, a link to it on manpodcast.com. I can't recommend it enough. Mark Dion, thanks so much for speaking with me. Thank you. It was a pleasure. Experience Tom Sachs' Tea Ceremony, a new perspective on the traditional ceremony combining the artist's longtime interests, branding, Americana, space travel, and everyday manufactured materials. On view now at the Nasher Sculpture Center in Dallas through January 7th. Learn more at nashersculpturecenter.org. The Museum of Contemporary Art San Diego presents Memories of Underdevelopment, Art in the Decolonial Turn nineteen sixty to nineteen eighty five at its downtown location from september seventeenth through january twenty first, twenty eighteen. In collaboration with the Museo Humex in Mexico City and the Museo de Arte de Lima, Memories of Underdevelopment brings together artistic practices that, although evidently related, have until now been treated separately. Showcasing conceptual and performance artworks, this exhibition will shed new light on such well-known artists as Lina Bobardi, Elia Sica, and Ligia Pape, as well as lesser-known artists in Colombia, Uruguay, Chile, and Peru. For more information, visit MCASD.org. Welcome back. My next guest is Annika E., She's included in Trigger, Gender as a Tool and a Weapon, which is at the New Museum in New York through January 21st, 2018. E's solo credits include exhibitions at the Guggenheim in New York, the Kunsthal Basel in Switzerland, and MIT's List Visual Arts Center. Annika E, welcome to the Modern Art Notes podcast.
2: It's a pleasure to be here. Thank you for having me.
0: An enormous range of your art, whether it addresses our sense of smell or, or or other things, engages with science and scientific methods and examinations. When did you become interested in science? Are we talking about back in childhood? I think that
2: there was always a kind of inquisitive relationship to how things work and a certain kind of, let's say, an educated guessing around how things might work. So I think that definitely as a young person, I was interested in science, but I think most artists, especially, you know, in the studio, whether you're aware of your relationship, active relationship to scientific principles and scientific relationship and and solutions, you're dealing with science all the time, you know, whether it's paint oil paint, acrylic paint and you know just like the basics of chemistry and physics and things like that.
0: Painters back in the the 15th and 16th centuries had to make their own paints and and that involved understanding the chemistry of the thing. So as you as you moved into having a a as you moved in kind of a backwards way into having a career as an artist, do you remember what it was that motivated you to mash up scientific method, swabbing things, playing with bacteria and pharmaceuticals and, and, and chemistry, such as scent manufacture? Do you remember what motivated you to mash up that kind of thing with sculpture and installation?
2: Well, you know, I think that having this sort of engagement with science as a tool, it was very possible to incorporate this into my toolkit, so to speak, and without having any kind of hierarchical assignment to science over, let's say, you know, smell or acrylic plastic or something, a material that I might use or something like deep fried fly, fried flowers or something like that, you know, and just to sort of build this kind of vivid, robust repertoire and science was also it was a conversation that led to becoming a very palpable tool and certainly the doors got very very flung open through the residency i did at MIT in 2015 and they had a program that just very intelligently paired science with art and art and science in this very symbiotic way and they recognized early on that we could enrich each other,
0: these communities, uh, these systems. I wanted to ask about that residency. You must have had some interest in melding the two to have applied for it.
2: Absolutely. Well, you know, and um, so much of my work, earlier work with smells, um, having also independently created perfumes as well and fragrances, you know, that, is such a it's such a core vernacular in my practice, and that I think that 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 was definitely the kind of logical pairing uh to sort of you know kind of move forward into a more rigorous scientific environment and ecosystem
0: so had you expected to work more on sense at MIT and then found As you, as you, as you know, to use your metaphor, the door is flung open that led you in other ways. Or, what was it that you encountered at MIT that was the the go this way indicator? Well,
2: you know, I was interested in biology, and I um, I think that a lot of answers for our species, for our existence, in thinking about other species, I think a lot of answers are in biology. So I knew that I was interested in meeting some biologists, whether they be molecular, uh, structural, synthetic biologists. And I happened to meet a synthetic biologist at MIT. And that sort of kind of really helped me to sort of hatch a more ambitious project working with bacteria, but it wasn't necessarily the first time I'd worked with bacteria. I'd certainly worked with kombucha leather, cultivating kombucha, and even kind of accidentally worked with bacteria back in 2011 for a a kind of an organic tofu wall sculpture that sort of started uh, uh, growing wild bacteria everywhere. And that was unintended at the time.
0: I, I was prepared to ask a question about scent, and, and and I can't pass up the opportunity to ask about bacteria. Had you used bacteria before that, or did it enter itself into your practice of its own volition, so to speak?
2: You mean before the, 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 the raw tofu <laughs> culture? No, that would definitely be the, the big bang moment <laughs> that sort of did insert itself into the repertoire <laughs> and 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 because of my work and my materials you know that a lot of the materials i work with are volatile unstable and i have to have a, a certain kind of agility and a certain sort of a, a, a flexibility and a, a, an ability to just sort of embrace what's happening and to kind of you know move with it and accommodate it and riff and improvise with it which is not to say that control isn't a leitmotif in the work, because that's sort of the kind of, it's the it's the invisible sort of, you know, soldier really in the work that doesn't get discussed that much or prominently or foregrounded in my work, you know, because, you know, when you're allowing for this kind of slippage, this these leakings, you know, what have you, you know, you have to kind of have some sort of, you know some some infrastructure some parameters because otherwise it's just bottomless chaos
0: It's probably impossible to tell but I've been trying to work toward your recent Guggenheim show which in, involved both bacteria and scent and and so I think we've got bacteria as, as a way of kind of beginning to talk about your use of scent you did a show at the Kunsthalle Basel in 2015 which involved the creation of a scent that was then used to soak the paper of the show's catalog, which you then encouraged purchasers to burn, which would then release The Scent. First, why? And then secondly, do you know of people who actually did it?
2: Well, you know, the book was like an attempt at this kind of self-cannibalism. It was definitely a burn-after-reading, sort of tongue-in-cheek project, but it's ostensibly a, a kind of... The show was... Loosely inspired by looking back on the past five, seven years of my production uh, cycle. It's a way of kind of resetting the dials, and And I think that's really important. the kind of uh, sort of like temporality, the inner sort of quantum, you know the, the, the physics of our practice, of our uh, sort of creativity of our imagination and to sort of revisit that. And I tend to do that kind of rinse, recycle kind of uh, methodology when it comes to certain aspects like my titles or a certain kind of material that I'll repurpose in a new way instead of just this kind of, you know, cutting off period as though somehow, you know, that history isn't contiguous and that it isn't organic and porous, you know? So it was a way for me to look back and sort of, sort of reconfigure and, you know, kind of dice and slice my, my, my sculptural language, my conceptual language from the past seven years. And so it felt very urgent to apply that spirit to the, to the book. And I had always, always, dreamt of making a burning incense book because I was always fascinated by the Papier d'armenie, you know, the, the, the sort of French burning incense paper as a room fragrance. And I thought, oh, it would be so fantastic to make an entire book out of it. And uh, you could sort of get immersed in the smell while you're reading about the work. And the, the fragrance was inspired by Alzheimer's. And you know, we associate the sort of crucible of, of 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 our relationship to smell is memory, right? I mean, that's the cornerstone. And yet I wanted to create a smell around forgetting because I was looking back and it was a kind of a, a sort of like a schizophrenic sort of almost a synesthesia, a synesthesic looking back, that the senses are reordered, that they're sort of chopped up, that they are... Sort of, they become kind of elastic, and and it was an attempt to try to reconfigure this in a kind of quantum, metaphysical kind of way. And so I did have uh, numerous people who have told me that they did tear off pieces of the book and burn the the smell and read the catalog essays and read about my work and. And I think it's a, it's a pretty intense experience of me. It's a very assertive move on my part to just go so many levels down into the psychic experience, the emotional, the, the sort of the sensorial, the biological, you know?
0: You briefly mentioned the relationship between scent and memory. Several years before you did the Kunsthal Basel project slash catalog slash... Burning suggestion thing. You, in a in a, a twenty twelve interview with Kriti Upadhyay for Zing magazine, you said that you wanted people who saw your work to quote be prepared to crank up the memory machine. So, is is what you're suggesting that you found scent maybe to be the best or most specific or most immersive way to do that?
2: Certainly, on a level it can be. I think that I wanted to tap into this emotional, psychic vessels that we all are and constantly shifting at that, you know, and to sort of be able to tap into that through smells in the work so that you're not explicitly experiencing that which is physical and material in terms of a certain kind of, you know, object-oriented anchoring experience, but that there's this sort of immaterial powerful sort of force that is happening that's so unique and customized towards the individual and that no two experiences could really be alike or identicals for that matter, but that there are sort of common threads that we can, you know, sort of build a cohesive discussion around or that we can build empathy around, you know, I mean, I think empathy can be universal and specific and singular at the same time so
0: we've talked about bacteria and we've talked about scent and you kind of brought those two related things together in in the guggenheim show what was your hoped-for relationship between the bacteria that you grew for force majeure i hope i'm pronouncing that right and the scent that you had emitted from a canister a piece called immigrant caucus
2: well I think that I think I, I was trying to tap into a number of things. I mean, there was a lot of complex layers to the works themselves, and also the relationship, the sort of vectors that I hope were, you know, created with the works. I you know, started the exhibition, really started to rigorously jump into the exhibition making process. You know, Trump had just become elected president. And I, like most people, was just flummoxed, and really sad, and angry, and 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 morose. And I had to stop what I was doing. I didn't know how to how to address this. That felt very urgent. That I had to address it in the work. You know, politics is always always very front and center in the work, not as as a certain kind of you know policy or some kind of, you know, mandate in the work, but it's, it, you know, my work is, it exists in the world. It addresses the world at large. So it's impossible to avoid a political, topical sort of, you know, historical issues. And so with this, you know, scent, I wanted to, I wanted to address these notions of nationalism that's been on the rise, you know, notions of white supremacy Also, you know, this proposal of the Muslim ban, all of these things. And so I wanted to tackle ethnicity and in relation to smell. And I wanted to work with the limits of science around that. I wanted to talk about stereotypes and prejudices around smells. And also when I say limits of science, I worked with a forensic chemist, for example, for one component of creating the smell of Asian American females combined with carpenter ants.
0: And if I could just jump in, that's a relationship that that you and the Guggenheim underscored and some of the images made available to promote and yeah, to promote the show. So there are uh, vials of something that can be understood, you know, with a little bit of text to be sent and then there are carpenter ants walking around them.
2: Right, but also carpenter ants are also incorporated into the smell.
0: Right, right. I was just trying to build the constellation.
2: Exactly, exactly, yes. And that also speaks to the the biofiction, which is a term that a very, very good colleague of mine, Carolyn Jones, has termed uncoined for the kind of work that I make. It's this kind of fiction that is created through biography and biology. And so but I wanted to you know uh, work with the limits of science insofar as you cannot really qualify through taking uh, samples of certain ethnic groups that one ethnic group definitively smells like this, concentration A versus another ethnic group smelling like concentration B or something like that, you know, because of the different components of what comprises an individual smell. Which is ultimately, you know, your personal microbiome, your your gut bacteria, your your diet, and your tertiary, which is something like your shampoo, your body lotion, your your deodorant, that sort of thing that gets, you know, absorbed into your body, your pores. So working with a, um, you know, I, I I was able to get a, a chemical reading of an Asian American female smell and uh, combining that with the the carpenter ant. So that was transmitted and installed in this sort of gated pen, penned in area, just sort of kind of reminiscent of a kind of holding cell for people in a very sort of dystopic scenario, you know, of, of people who would maybe not be allowed into the country or be deported from the country.
0: And there were kind of canisters on the ground. I'm not sure I'm using the right word, but that would you know that that flushed out the visual thing that people would see as they walked through that 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 gate that portal.
2: Yes, insect canisters that were transmitting the smell, the scent, which is also like part of the grounding visual uh, sort of narrative around you know that relates to the ant diorama. And what have you, but also the conjuring. But really, I wanted to—I wanted this sort of this this biofiction to the ability to suggest that if you internalize the smell, you take in the molecules, that you would be able to walk around into the rest of the exhibition with the perception of an Asian American female and the perception of an ant, which speaks to my interest in post-humanism. It addresses this ability to take on the perception of a different species and to have an awareness and a consciousness and empathy for other living forms and other species where the humans aren't at the top of this hierarchical pyramid of existence.
0: Do you think people could figure that out or did figure that out from being in the show or is that background mostly important for you as as you create
2: anything is possible (laughs) (laughs) i think that i can't say definitively yes or no because again you know smell is so powerful and that when you are experiencing it and you are taking it in inhaling it into your body and you're walking through that you are altered your your chemicals are jostled you know that you're you're accommodating something that is 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 quite new and foreign I think that it's very possible that you could have experienced some sort of glimpse into this this sort of hybrid existence. You know, I mean, this, this hybrid is, is a very a strong uh, sort of drive that I had in creating this scent, this fragrance, and also this hybrid consciousness that I was trying to trigger throughout the exhibition. And that's, what I'm attempting to do in a very not passive way, you know, but it's possible. It is possible. And that is something that, that was really, I think it came from a, a kind of an impossibility, which was the premise that I started the exhibition making process with, which is I wanted to create a drug that would allow someone like me, a human female to be able to, if I took the drug, I would be able to experience the consciousness and perception of another human being or another different species, let's say a coral reef or something. And of course I brought that to my biologists at Columbia University at their labs. And of course they told me, well, you know, biologically it's impossible. (laughs) (laughs) Well, yes. And I thought, come on guys, you know, uh, you must have some, some secret that we don't know about but of course no I'd have to you know remap the shape of my brain to your brain if I wanted to experience your perception and your consciousness and we just don't have the technology for that yet but the the exhibition making what is birthed through this kind of impossibility which of course is a euphemism for a fiction you know a certain kind of biofiction
0: you know, we keep talking about alchemy, you know, the use of chemistry to make something new and different without talking about alchemy. Alchemy has a long relationship to visual art. In fact, the first representation of the three primary colors came in an 18th century Italian alchemy text. Are are you specifically interested in, in alchemy, or is it just kind of part and parcel?
2: I think it's impossible for me to not work with alchemy, through alchemy. And I think that that is incredibly a a, a certain charged component to my practice that it's almost, sometimes I take it for granted because it's just a given that alchemy is, you know, foregrounded. It is very much a sort of interest of mine, but I don't necessarily isolate it as a subject, as an inquiry, as a kind of, you know, a field of study, a scholarly pursuit, or something like that, because it, it is—it's just—I it, it, think it activates most of my work, and I think that it's—it's it's very much a part of what I do, and and I and I think it's—it's—it's it's, it's very important to recognize that.
0: One of the two pieces of yours up or about to be up as we're as we're taping at the new museum is titled "I'm Every Woman I Ever Met." It has pearls and peanuts in kind of vacuum. Formed and sealed plexi. Pearls are a material that come out of kind of what we've been discussing, right? Oysters make them by, by mixing their own body, if you will, chemistry with an adjutant such as a grain of sand. And I'm guessing that's one of the reasons why you use pearls a good bit. You, you, you like that idea that that's how we get pearls. Tell me about peanuts. Why mash up? Why put together peanuts with pearls?
2: I've been fascinated by this kind of like geopolitical history around nuts. <laughs> peanuts are are, are very, they're, they're kind of evil, you know? I mean, well, first of all, they're very fatty. And, you know, it's it's very, very emblematic of the American nut, right? And for, for a very long time, uh, you know, peanuts were subsidized by the American government to allow peanuts to have a fair leg up, in the nut market. <laughs> and so there's this whole sort of like, you know, political sort of controversy and entanglement around the, the international market of nuts. And I think that I was fascinated by researching nuts and how it reflects onto the sort of like these very sort of like unfair sort of monopolies and, and unfair tariffs that were imposed on developing countries' nuts. And how America really, if you start to research like through different industries and through agriculture, again, going to the biology of how American imperialism came to the rise and how it became sustained that way, you know, and peanuts were largely responsible through the agricultural uh, sort of system. And to me, peanuts had always represented a very sort of sinister <laughs> kind of persona. And and it also, you know, to me had a kind of like a very masculine, you know, there's the Mr. Peanut character of the planters peanut, you know, character. And so that was sort of where I was coming from, the the riffing of that, this sort of geopolitical, you know, imperialism of America. And then also this very patriarchal sort of relationship to that
0: nut maybe i was reading too much into the into the title of the work which again is i'm every woman i ever met because i was guessing because thinking would be too strong a word that peanut was the the, the peanuts were a metaphor for ovaries because too because a peanut is kind of in, in, in 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 you know the shape of a peanut kind of recalls the shape of 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 ovaries connected by tubes but i'm guessing i'm wrong I mean, I'm, apparently I am wrong.
2: No, I actually really like your version a lot. <laughs> that's a very poetic uh, reading of the work, and I actually really like it. But no, no, I wasn't necessarily thinking about that. But that doesn't mean you're wrong. And I think that you know what an artist might have been thinking at the time, that doesn't necessarily mean that that's what the work is about. Does that make sense? You oh, know. I'd oh, t-
0: it does. We love artists who allow open-ended readings, interpretations of their work.
2: And I don't even think, I would even go as far as to say that I don't even know if an artist is really the right person to talk about what that work is. And, you know, I mean, I know we get into like lots of different areas about authorship and things like that, but there's a certain kind of motivation that is certainly steered by an artist, but when it all kind of comes together and shakes out in the experiential realm, the artist is certainly not the expert, in my opinion, you know, because how can I say that, you know, like having put the work together, birthed it, and and just sort of steered it in a direction, but then it's out there in the world. I don't really have any purchase on that experience. And so I think your interpretation is, Probably better than my own. I mean, not across the board, but in this instance, I think it's quite
0: good. <laughs> Phew. Anakee, thanks so much.
2: Okay. Thanks for having me. It was really fun.
0: That's all for this week's show. The Modern Art Notes podcast is edited by Wilson Butterworth. Special thanks to Steve Roden, who created the sound for the program.